Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I'm in this uh, really old military plane <clears throat> and I'm flying uh, over the Sahara Desert and this plane does not have any windows so it's completely pitch black in there and the air is not moving, it's so hot <laughs> and I know like the plane is full but you know men in, in uniform and it's packed and everyone's sweating and I have sweat like running down my back which is always a nice feeling uh, and no one could see me but... Uh, but I was sitting there in the middle of this, just with this big smile on my face. Hi, and welcome to the Bridge Builders Society pod, the BBS pod, where you meet the exciting people who connect countries, cultures, and businesses around the world. We're recording this in Stockholm. I'm Tina Magnegard Björs. My daytime job is as foreign news recorder at the Swedish news agency TT. I've covered American politics for many years, and I'm also a passionate yogi. And I'm Josephine Charpentier. I'm an entrepreneur in marketing and PR with a soft spot for technology. I'm also the founder of iConfest. So today we're super proud to introduce you to our guest Lisa Lascaridis. Lisa, whom I've seen working really hard and being everywhere all the time during summits at the United Nations. She was head of press and communications at the Swedish mission to the UN when Sweden was a member of the Security Council recently. And Lisa did some really creative things with social media and digital diplomacy that really put Sweden on the map. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Hi, Lisa. We actually met the other day because uh, we just recently found out that my mother and father are best friends of Lisa's grandparents. So that's really a coincidence. And I'm so actually very happy about that. So we got to know each other. I know, I love that. It's a great story. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? All all roads lead to the BBS pod. Exactly. So, uh, Lisa, there is so much we want to talk to you about, but before we dive into your personal story in New York, we would like you to bring us to Mali in July last year. What happened? Uh, Absolutely. That was uh, an experience that made uh, a strong impression on me for for many reasons. So it was end of June uh, 2018. Uh, and I'm on my way to Timbuktu in in Mali, and the purpose of me going on this field trip was to create an outreach campaign about the UN peacekeeping mission there, and also the the Swedish contingency. So so I'm in this uh, really old military plane, <coughs> and I'm flying uh, over the Sahara Desert, and this plane does not have any windows so it's completely pitch black in there and the air is not moving it's so hot (laughs) and I know like the plane is full but you know men in in uniform and it's packed and everyone's sweating and I have sweat like running down my back which is always a nice feeling Uh, and no one could see me but 
uh, but I was sitting there in the middle of this, just with this big smile on my face. Um, I was like super, very excited to go on this mission and to finally uh, visit a UN peacekeeping mission and to see what it was like uh, in real life and how it operates. Um, and I was also super happy about flying in a UN plane, which is of course just a plane with the letters UN on it, but it had <laughs> been like a dream of mine for, for a long time. So I was very happy uh, at this point. Um, and we landed at the airport, which was uh, closed because of bomb threats. But we land there, and you know, soldiers come running with these bulletproof vests and, and helmets that we put on, and they strap us in a car and they drive us to the camp. The, this is the Swedish part of the peacekeeping mission. Um, and stepping out of the car, and it's it's the hottest I think I ever experienced. It was 48 degrees Celsius in oh in God. the shade. And the sun, I mean, I felt like my skin was just melting, uh, you know, off my body. And this, there was sand everywhere, and the sand is red. And, you know, instantly you have sand everywhere, like in your, in your face and in your eyes and in your mouth. And, and they took me to my tent, and they showed me uh, my bunk bed, which was, I think, one of ten uh, in this very big tent. Um, and they showed me um, the knife. There's a knife uh, attached next to the bed, and they told me, you know, use this, if there's a fire, use this knife to cut yourself out. And if there's an attack, you know, you have to sleep with the vest and the helmet sort of close to you. And if there's attack, you have to lie on the floor and put it on top of you, and you have to run to the bunker. Um, and I was there, and I remember my, my head was just spinning from all these new impressions, and uh, my brain was trying to adapt to this new environment, and I think the heat, you know, got to me um, a bit as well. Um, but I was there with the Swedish Armed Forces, and I was very lucky enough to, to travel with the Supreme Commander, and I got to walk around the camp with him for, uh, for a few days, uh, to talk to a lot of the soldiers. Uh, Sweden has about 200 uh, serving there in Timbuktu when I was there. And, and we got to talk to them and they got to tell us, you know, how their days looked like, what their responsibilities were, and but also how they felt about being there and the reason for them, uh, for them being there. And it made me really understand uh, the connection from the work that we were doing in the Security Council to to this action on the ground. Because we, Sweden was in the Security Council when we adopted a resolution that extended the mandate for uh, the peacekeeping mission in Mali. And that translated to, to, you know, these actual people being there on the ground and the amazing work that they do every day and also the reason that they were there was because they wanted to do their part to to better the world, and that just uh, you know very much um, inspired me. To someone who might not know it, uh, why does UN have a peacekeeping mission in Mali? Uh, they're having a peacekeeping mission there to um, to stabilize uh, the country. There are terrorist groups to uh, to protect the civilians and to uh, help the government. There are some really violent groups connected to Al Qaeda in the north, right? Yes, there there's several different uh, terrorist groups mm. uh, in the country, and I think Minusma, which is the peacekeeping mission, has been there since 2013, if I'm not wrong. Mm. Were you ever afraid? Uh, no, you know, I thought about I thought about that as well, but no, I I was not. I was. I was, I think, thrilled, and I f remember just feeling very much alive, and I kind of, I just loved the feeling of being there. But I, I guess I always been drawn to situations um, where there's a bit of risk involved, and I don't know why. But I you guess, like adrenaline, maybe. Yes, I guess that's yeah. I like feeling, you know, feeling alive. I guess that's the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us a little about your growing up. You're from the suburb of Stockholm, and you said that you always felt a bit different. 
Uh, yes, um, I mean different in in small ways. But my my father uh, is from Greece, and my mother uh, is born in Sweden. But both her parents are from Norway, from Oslo and Bergen. And uh, there was this little difference that would you know different from from my friends in school. Like we went to Greek school on Saturdays, and we went to dance lessons. But it was like sorba, and uh, <laughs> you know, on Easter we had a barbecue, and we had a whole lamb, like barbecuing in in the backyard. Um, but I, you know, I love all those uh, those little things. And um, you speak Greek. I do. Yes. Um, well, that's amazing. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, and spent a lot of time time in Greece and and in Norway. Uh, and I always feel I mean I feel at home in all all, all those three countries uh, actually because of all of the time we spent there. And um, I don't know, but I like to think that growing up with different cultures and languages and. And you know, Greece is not that far away, but they have a completely different way of acting and communicating and seeing things. And um, I remember my dad, uh, you know, went to dinner, and my dad would be like, "Hi, you know, well, who do you vote for? How much money do you make?" And you know, <laughs> that was the first question. That's that's not really how we yeah. communicate in Sweden, maybe uh, typically. Um, But I'd like to think maybe that's why, I mean, that made me into the bit of uh, explorer uh, that I am growing up with with the different cultures and all, also hearing the stories of my father and my grandparents uh, moving countries and what that was like and the challenges. And, uh, and Does yeah. your father still live in Sweden? Or yes, yes, he he's does. still here. And he, and he likes it? <laughs> Uh, he likes it, except for I mean, in the winter, every winter, yeah. he's like, "Why do we live here?" That's uh, also <laughs> what I'm asking myself. <laughs> yeah, you started traveling also pretty early, right? Uh, yes. So after high school, uh, I went backpacking with my friend Josephine, and we went for six months to Southeast Asia, and we spent about three months in in India. Um, and of course, I have not saved enough money for this trip uh, because you know I was 19 and I wanted to do other things with my money. But um, we went traveling, and I remember this. So I still feel bad about this. We were in India. We were like on this internet cafe in the middle of Jaisalmer Desert, and I was there with this, <laughs> trying to. I, I did. I sold my shares uh, that my parents had bought me for my graduations to, to you know, continue traveling, and I f- still feel bad about that. So I'm sorry, mom and dad, for that. Um, but something happened to me um, in when we were in India, and I felt like I kind of saw, you know, saw the world for what it was for for the first time, and how broken it was, and. And that, you know, there's so much work to be done uh, in this world. And I just felt that I wanted to, you know, I that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to help. And I felt very passionate about that. Um, and it's not a very, you know, original story, perhaps. But that's, uh, you know, that's how it happened. And I just completely changed from wanting to be uh, a copywriter at an mm-hmm. advertising agency to, you know, wanted to work internationally and to better the world. And then you ended up in Australia. And with then I. Aspiration. Exactly. Um, and then, so I moved to. I thought if I was going to work internationally, I need to, you know, really be able to uh, speak English uh, properly. And so I moved to Australia, to Melbourne, to do my degree there. Um, and it was an international studies uh, degree which was uh, a combination of uh, international relations, international law, diplomacy, and peace and security studies, sort of. Um, and at the same time, uh, I started working for for an amazing organization called the Asylum Seeker Resource Center uh, in Melbourne. And um, I was working in their detention center program, um, visiting refugees and asylum seekers that were locked up in this uh, detention center waiting to find out if they if they could stay. Um, and I don't know, it kind of just opened my eyes for 
how they treat refugees and asylum seekers, um, in particular in Australia. And uh, the conditions were not good. I know people come in and after two months they have gray hair and you just they just oh lose their spirit completely. And there's a lot of suicides. Um, because of, I mean, because of the conditions, they didn't really have any contact with the outside world or their family, but also, I think, mainly because of the fear, because they knew that at any time of the day, sometimes they come in the middle of the night and they just drag them out of bed and it's like, you, you're going back to where you came from and knowing that they would probably get killed or their family would get killed, they'd be tortured or... Um, and where were these asylum seekers from, mainly? Um, there were a, a lot uh, from Iraq uh, at that time, uh, Afghanistan as well, uh, mainly, and um, parts of Africa, of course. Um, so I was kind of an, a support person. Like you'd help them with if they had any legal, uh, they needed any legal support, or they wanted to send a letter. But more than anything, it was like emotional support, just having someone uh, that would come to see them, they can talk to, or that would listen to them or, or just a friend and that could be you know that could be the deciding factor for them not giving up um, so that was a very uh, rewarding uh, rewarding job but also very you know tough on the heart sometimes um, but I think it was there that I realized that I wanted to help you know I wanted to be somewhere where we can help people on the largest scale and that is sort of where the, the UN came into coming to my mind. Um, and in Melbourne, the closest thing I could get to the UN was the UN uh, United Nations Association of Australia. And I contacted them and was like, hey, you know, I, I really want to work for you. And they said, that's great, but we don't have anything. You know, call us again in a few months. I was like, okay, and but I'm very persistent when I, you know, when I decide something. So I called them every Friday. I remember at like one o'clock. I was like, do you have something? <laughs> every week, you know, this, every week is like oh, something great. open up. You know, I'm I'm here, and I think eventually they got tired of me like harassing them, and uh, they're like, okay, just come in. You know, and we'll we'll talk and we'll see what we can do. So I started, uh, I started working there um, after I don't know a couple of months of. Of harassment. <laughs> That's a good advice to everyone. Right? Just call every weekend or, or every Friday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's good. So, what did you do then? You uh, you just help out at the office? Uh, yes. So it's just part of the team helping yeah. out with uh, mostly public information and the model UN conferences and um, uh, any events that they had fundraising a little bit as well. Just packing up, why did you choose Australia? It's really very far away. From it is far, far, yes. Um, well, I wanted a degree in English, and I don't know, somehow England, it felt a bit too uh, not exciting enough. Uh, and and the U.S., I mean, everyone went to the U.S., and I always want to be different. So uh, I wanted to go to Australia, and everyone else goes to Sydney. So I was like, no, I'm going to Melbourne. <laughs> and... I'm very happy with that choice. Such an amazing, uh, amazing city and amazing place to to live. Mm. So you already then knew that you aimed for a career in international politics that had sort of grown on you. Um, yes, yes, I already knew at that point, and you know I wanted to get to the UN, but how you know how do you get there? And I was just very lucky I guess being in the right you know at the right place at the right time um, because the UN uh, Department of Public Information in New York at the headquarters uh, was organizing uh, a conference for nonprofit organizations in Melbourne uh, later that year this is 2010 and they had asked the UN Association of Australia to send someone over to, to help them to sort of have that local expertise. And and my manager asked me, and he's just like, I think you're you're the person that should go, and do you want to go? Um, and I kind of fell off my chair. I was like, what? <laughs> New York, UN, yes, like, I'm count me in. And then there was a bit of a crisis for, for, I think, the next week when she realized that, you know, they had asked for a local Australian, and <laughs> I'm not Australian. So she has to call them. It's like, it's okay if I'm sending a Swede. Like, she's been there for a while. She knows, you know, she knows Australia, but she's not Australian. And they say, yeah, sure, it's okay. 
Um, so that's how I ended up in, in New York. Um, and then obviously decided um, to stay there. So what was your first impression of the city? Um, well, I kind of, I had a kind of a, a bit of an unusual entry to, to New York, I think. I was flying from Stockholm to, to New York with Scandinavian Airlines. And I had this um, a girl sitting next to me, and um, she was only 16, and she was from Siberia. And, um, you know, I was trying to talk to her, but she couldn't speak English very well. And But we were trying to communicate in the way we could. And they came out with a lunch, and, and there was one of those cheeses, you know, the little triangles, the laughing cow cheeses. Yeah. <laughs> and she just looked at, she stared at that cheese for, like, for an eternity, and then she put it, like, in her toiletry bag and <laughs> and she looked at me I was like well you know, this is cheese you can you know you can eat this and she was like oh okay and I was like where are you from and she was from a small village in Siberia she'd never been outside that village before mm -hmm. she's traveling to New York and when she got there she didn't really know what she was going to do she was she had some numbers she was going to call from a public phone and some man was going to pick her up the next day and drive her south and uh, it all sounded really suspicious to me. I thought she was being like trafficked or something. She didn't have any papers. She didn't have you know a phone number or an email or uh, it all sounded really. I just got a bad feeling about it and and I couldn't I couldn't just leave her there. And I felt I'm, I will think about this for the rest of my life. You know what was going to happen to her. Um, so I took her with me to, uh, to <laughs> I was staying with uh, Agneta Ekemur. Uh, the, the lovely Agneta Ekemer that passed away. Um, and so I took her with me to, to Agneta Ekemer's apartment. And she was like, well, you know, I thought there was going to be one person. And I was like, well, you know, I found this girl. <laughs> and she's coming with me. And, and that night, um, she had this lovely penthouse apartment on Central Park West. Um, and that night, you could sort of climb up a little stair, and you sat on the roof and just overlooking the whole Manhattan and, oh and gosh, Central that Park. Must have been wonderful. And oh, I've been there too. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was kind of my my entry to New York. And I just I just sat there with with this girl and with Agneta's son that was telling us about 9/11, how it felt, you know, to be there at that time. And it was so obvious, like, you know, this is a new chapter of my life and just turning the page and, and starting starting something new. So what happened to the girl from Siberia? So what happened, we did some uh, some good research work, me and Agneta's son, Daniel, um, you know, online and calling people. And it turned out she was going to, to an arts uh, camp down down south in another state. Uh, and we called there, and you know we made we made all the all the right moves, and it was legit. So we went with her to Penn Station, and there was a whole class of people going to that same camp with like T-shirts and everything, um, and uh, and just like you just call us when you get there right away, and and she was fine, and now she's back home in in Siberia, and was now we're Facebook friends. <laughs> starting working with this uh, UN conference in Australia, right? Yes, so I had the contract for, uh, there was a, an eight months contract with the UNDPI in New York. Um, and, you know, eight months goes by pretty fast, but I decided that I wanted to stay. Uh, and I wanted to stay at the UN, but I didn't have the experience at the time to get the kind of, uh, you know, position that I wanted. So I knew that I had to get out and, um, and do some work. And but I didn't know anyone. I didn't know a single person when I came to New York. And at the UN, I had met this one man that he had a small nonprofit organization, and he offered me uh, a job there. Worked with another uh, nonprofit for for two years with uh, with women's rights in in Africa, developing uh, a center for women that had been abused. Um, and then. I was also trying to be a journalist for a year, uh, writing articles with women's rights, focus also on, on women in, in East Africa. And I, as I kind of call those uh, those years my, my struggling humanitarian years. Learning, learning years. Or learning years. <laughs> just it barely made any money and was just, you know, struggling. And 
but I feel New York, I mean, you know, New York is kind of, I'm like, every city has their own personality, but New York is really, is like testing you, and either the city is with you or against you, and I feel like it was just those few years just testing me, like, are you really cut out to be here? Like, do you deserve to live in the city? Um, and it would have been easy to just quit and, and move back to Sweden, but no, I was like, no, nope, I'm going to stay. You're not a quitter. <laughs> <laughs> was it like working with a campaign? Uh, so the campaign, uh, I mean, it was, it was tough, but it was super, super exciting. And I think just the first week, uh, starting, uh, working there at the Swedish UN mission, Uh, we were sitting in one of the conference rooms and it's on the 46th floor uh, with this beautiful view over Manhattan and and uh, you know across the table from me was uh, foreign minister Margot Wallström which you know I admire and we were talking about the campaign in the UN and I just thought like you know yes you know this is uh, this is where I'm supposed to be and I was just you know, pinching uh, myself. And what happened? How did you get there? How did you end? And uh, how did you land this job? Uh, <laughs> after the struggle. Yeah, so after the struggle, I, I finally got a job, a temporary position with the Consulate General of Sweden. And I was in charge of their press and communication for, uh, for one year, uh, covering from somebody. And then by the time my contract ended there, Uh, the Swedish government had launched a Security Council campaign, and I was recommended to uh, to join the, the campaign team um, because they were looking for someone that did not come from the foreign ministry and that was sort of uh, had a different perspective and a bit creative and that looked at things differently. Um, so I, you know, they they hired me there. So that's how I ended up there. Wow. So back to this meeting with the foreign. Secretary. Yes. Um, so we had this meeting, and and she told us that, you know, this this is not impossible, but it's going to be really tough this campaign because we were already we were already behind. Um, we were competing with Netherlands and Italy, uh, and they were way way ahead of us. And so, so we kind of had to run, you know, run with everything. There was not much time to to plan you know thorough strategies we just have to we just have to run with everything uh and at the same time I was trying to just learn this new environment not having worked with the foreign minister before it's just a completely different uh you know how they operate and how they how they speak and how they write and just just everything uh was new to me But um, my job was to create um, events that uh, events and initiatives that tied into our Security Council uh, priorities and the campaign narrative. And um, and I know, I mean, while we were campaigning, you know, there was some critique in in the media, and I remember reading this one article that said, you know, Sweden, forget about it. You know, you will never get into the Security Council. Something like that. Um, And but it just motivated me. I was like, you know, watch us. We will get there, and and we did. Um, and when we got elected, uh, June twenty eighth, two thousand and sixteen. I mean, it was incredible when they was sort of announcing, you know, Sweden one hundred thirty four votes. Like we got most votes out of out of the three, and it was just. I mean, how can you explain it? It was just pure joy and. And also exciting knowing that it was just the beginning, you know, it was the end of something, but it was the beginning of, of something else. And why do you think that was? Why did Sweden get so many votes? Um, I mean, for many reasons. I It's, it's hard to, to summarize, but I think mainly because we were talking to, to countries. We were... Uh, we were listening and and a dialogue, you know, friendly nation, and we made a promise that you know if you if your country is going to be on the agenda in the Security Council, we will talk to you first. So we will make sure that you are involved in in that process, um, and also because what what we stand for and what sort of what what our core priorities were going to be in the Security Council, which was. 
you know, women, peace, security, um, children, armed conflict, and climate insecurity, and uh, and also very big on the humanitarian uh, humanitarian files. Um, and I think, and we were genuine, like we, we, we always play fair and we stand up for what we believe in. And I think countries just felt that, you know, that's the kind of partner we want to have uh, speaking for us in the Security Council. That feels a bit Swedish. Yes, I guess so. <laughs> genuine. And... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Well, that's what I hear when I travel all, the, all over the world. They always say, well, the Swedes are very genuine and, you know, reliable people. Yeah. <laughs> so Sweden got in yeah. and, and then you actually got a, a new job also. Yes. Um, <laughs> so we got in and, um, and they offered me the position, of, uh, the position of head of press and communication for the Security Council term. And I was, uh, you know, over the moon and excited to take on this challenge. It's just a big, big you know, big responsibility and a, and a big job. And, um, but I had not, you know, I had not worked as a press secretary in this kind of setting. And I, and you know, the stakes are really high and you're dealing with the biggest news agencies in the world. And so I had, you know, I was lying awake at night, like for weeks, just seeing these like terrible headlines that I'd somehow <laughs> created and that would lead to a political crisis. And I was like, oh, all right. Um, and I, I had a talk with Olaf Skog, the ambassador. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to be straight with him and say, you know, I really, I really want this. Uh, I want to do this. I will give it everything I have and, and more. But I just want you to know that I don't have this kind of press, you know, experience. You know, I'm sure I'll try to figure it out, but I, I don't. I just want you to know that in case of this political crisis that I might, <laughs> you know, that might, might be my fault. Um, and he said, you know, I appreciate you talking to me. And he said, Lisa, no, I know you, and I know who you are. I know how you work, and 
uh, I know that you will do this brilliantly. Like, I, I believe in you. Um, and that meant a lot to me, of course. Uh, and to have a boss that believes in you in that way, it's, it's amazing. And I want to say, I want to say thanks to Olaf, but also to my my closest boss, Carl Scow, for, you know, always believing in me and 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 pushing me, but also really trusting me and letting me run with my own ideas and um, growing in that role. And it's been it's been amazing. So, uh, so what were the actual challenges? What was new to you then? Um, yes, so in the beginning I felt like ev- everything uh, was a challenge and I don't think I've ever had such a, a deep learning curve as that month because uh, we were new to the council, we were new to the working methods, to, to some of the substance. Um, I was launching the communication strategy and the press strategy and, and the video blog and you know trying to find some headspace to be creative in all of this and working with the press and and we made a point out of speaking to the press every morning because we wanted to be as transparent as possible and we come down there and you have everyone there uh you know CNN and Al Jazeera and, and any any sort of news agency you can think about New York Times and they had been there for years. Like, they knew the Security Council inside and out. They know everything. And we were just, you know, beginners. And I thought they would, like, eat us for breakfast. <laughs> um, but, but you know, everything, everything, I think we managed pretty well. So what happened? Every morning, like, Olaf went to the stakeout and said... This is what's happening today. Or yes, exactly. So, you know, in the morning, we always have our morning meeting going through the day, you know, what happened overnight and what are we going to today, what are we going to say, what's our position. And and we we write these press lines for Olaf and we go through it in the car on the way down to the Security Council and we get there and he speaks about uh, the meetings of the day and what Sweden's position is. And then... You always have a second, you know, page with, you know, this and this and this might come up. Questions that, yeah, you know, you're a journalist <laughs> uh, that you need. You know, if Olaf can't answer a question, that that is my fault. So I need to make sure that he's prepared for whatever question may may come up. Um, and um, and that's that was part of the press work. And then also, of course, uh, press releases. If there was something uh, that we really wanted to push, um, we always tried to be accessible for interviews and and comments. And we had informal press briefing, briefings, and we had formal press conferences. Um, and you know, it's we had this unofficial uh, goal, me uh, me and Carl, that. Um, for every article in the New York Times when they were writing about Security Council, uh, there was usually three quotes from Security Council members, and they were usually, you know, the P5, the permanent five. Uh, but we were like, we're going to be one of those quotes. And, and you know, we did that eventually. We got to that stage. So that was like... Yeah. <laughs> A good goal. Yes. <laughs> and what were the topics that first month? This was... Uh, I mean, we had Gambia with... Uh, there was a crisis in Gambia. There was a crisis in Gambia. There was... Now I don't... I mean, these two years, we had, I think, 580-something formal meetings and 250-something uh, close consultations. And it's been so intense. So if you ask me what the meetings were the first month... <laughs> I mean, there was North Let's Korea talk. at that yeah. time, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot of North Korea. And uh, there was Gambia. A lot of January was was Gambia as well. And in general, there was Yemen, Syria. Um, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Like uh, over all of this. And the South. Like I a mean. Red thread. Yes. Mm. So there was like three. I mean, minimum two two meetings a day. Sometimes four. Mm. Um, so so I mean, any any crisis in the world anywhere. Uh, that there is instability and a threat to international peace security that's on the agenda. So it would be anything from from terrorism to uh, you know South Sudan or child soldiers or mm. cyber security or. Mm. So I was also there a, a bit as yes. a journalist, <laughs> and uh, I remember uh, interviewing your boss Olaf about this uh, ahead of Sweden uh, starting mm. its tenure, and he's saying uh, that. Of course, Sweden wanted to focus on all these uh, big topics, but also some of the more uh, 
how do you call it, not soft topics, but, but uh, topics that Sweden is known to want to promote, like mm. uh, the role of women in, in solving conflicts and, and children's issues and so on. But then he also said that, well, we might also have to start from a bit of a Swedish union way, because the working environment really sucks in the UN, it's really bad, or oh, sorry, not in the UN, but in the Security Council, mm. people cannot really talk to each other. Maybe we have to start having, uh, I don't know, afternoon coffee with cinnamon rolls or something, <laughs> Swedish so that people can, actually, people can <laughs> actually talk to each other. And that's also something that you did, right? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. The the We came into the Security Council when the tension like between member states were really... Uh, the I tension remember. was really high there, and and especially in my, among some of the P five countries, and and we tried to be a constructive partner and to be a bridge builder. Huh. Do I get an extra point for that? Yeah. No, <laughs> uh, you know, bringing parties to the table and and pushing for real dialogue, even when when it was difficult, and you. And that first month when we were the president, like you have to be, and this is just my own opinion, but you have to be a brilliant, you have to be a good diplomat to, to lead an effective meeting in this kind of uh, environment. And... Um, Before you continue, yeah. for those listening who don't know what P5 is, that is the permanent five members of the United Nations, meaning Russia, the United States, Great Britain... China and France. Exactly. Right. Yes. yes. So they are always there, but they don't always agree. They don't always agree. <laughs> uh, and we imagine. could be in close consultations, <laughs> and you have the UK and Russia, you know, and the, it's a small room. Uh, so they're sitting, you know, uh, across the table from each other, and it's not, it's not a long distance between these ambassadors, and they're just yelling at each other and we were all in shock this is this is security council this is how how things go down here um but uh i think olaf i mean he he is a very skilled diplomat and he did a great job in in always finding a compromise uh and sort of pushing the the agenda uh forward and also being that middle sort of middle ground that if 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 one country would present the resolution Another would maybe say, no way, just because it was that country. But if if we did it, they might approach it differently. Hmm. Uh, I wouldn't make the parallel to some kids playing, but it's yeah. a bit like that, kids playing. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, it's like family relations, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So did it change during your time there then? Or are they still gelling when you... <laughs> <laughs> no, it definitely got better. I think that first month was uh, was was one of the worst, um, but but it got it got better. Mm. And then you actually took all the ambassadors back to Sweden. Uh, you brought all the ambassadors to Backwaka to Dag Hammarskjölds, uh, the second Secretary General of the United Nations, the famous Swede. You took you took the ambassadors to uh, his um, country house. In yes, Skåne. that's right. Um, that was a year later. That was a year later, but that definitely, I mean, just to take everyone out of uh, out of the council to a new, envi new environment uh, and also having the spirit of Dag Hammarskjöld there, which is, um, it really made a difference. And I think uh, the space they had to reflect and communicate there uh, did them all very good. You know, they all came back, like, m maybe with a little bit of a different um, approach and... And mindset. Did you see any any uh, practical changes? Did uh, I don't know Russia and uh, Great Britain take walks together? Did <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny because they they can yell each other, yell at each other uh, in meetings and be kind of nasty sometimes, but then in the end of the day, they're they're still good friends. Uh, and I know they sometimes had informal events, uh, you know, all the ambassadors, and they all joke with each other, and, you know, but when you're in the council, it's politics, and you have your agenda, and your, you know, your foreign policy, and, but it doesn't mean that they wouldn't talk to each other when, mm. when the meeting is over. So, um... It's been two years uh, that Sweden was in the Security Council. Uh, is there an event that made like a very super strong impression on you, besides from the back 
Um, a, a, a lot of, I mean, a few of them. Um, I would say it was in February uh, when we adopted the, the Syria humanitarian resolution uh, for a ceasefire that would uh, enable humanitarian aid for uh, for a lot of people. That was that was that was a big moment for us, and we had our experts and ambassadors working really hard uh, to push this resolution through. You know, for for weeks, if not months. So, I mean, that and every time uh, a resolution passed that we had, uh, that we had really worked hard for was, was a really um, strong, you know, uh, emotional or you just feel like, you know, this, this is why we're here. This is how you make, make, and this is one way of making a difference. Well, this is the way to make a difference for people on the ground, and that is what we, that was our main purpose, to, to make a difference for the people that are suffering um, and, you know, we passed 115 resolutions in two years, which is kind of mind-blowing now when you think about it. And, and when I speak to people, I mean, I don't think everybody realizes that um, a Security Council resolution, when it's passed, it becomes uh, international law and it's binding for, for all countries, uh, all 193 member states. And, that, I mean, I think that is quite amazing. Mm. Um, and some leaders that made an impression on you, who are they? Uh, some do leaders. You have any? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I've been very fortunate to to meet and to see and hear a lot of uh, a lot of leaders, and and that is one of the things about the UN that that I love that they are there's they're always there, and you can you know you can walk into an elevator and you're standing next to the president of a country and sometimes you don't even know it but sometimes you do um and and that first summer when i was at the un i got to hear uh, nelson mandela and president obama speak and i i mean it just blew me away i was like this is where i want to be for the rest of my life i love this place i mean mm. it was in, uh, incredible but um what I think is so fascinating about the leaders also is the energy sort of that they bring with them and how the chemistry shift uh, when a leader comes in the room and how the, the energy in the room is so different from uh, when President Obama was there to when President Trump was there, for example. In what way? How is it different? I mean, I can't really explain it. It's something that you just kind of feel under your skin and, and it's I, I can't explain it. Like, you kind of have to be there. Mm. Um, and then I had a meeting, I think it was last, I was maybe two years ago now, uh, when I got to shake hands with uh, Kofi Annan. And, and he was Secretary General when I started dreaming of the UN. And, you know, to, to got to shake his hand, it was, I was completely uh, starstruck. Uh, so we were just there holding hands and staring at each other, and my intern was kind of kicked me in the you know side. She's like, "You have to say something." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I wanted to say I love you, but I didn't." I was like, "You should have." <laughs> he already had a Swedish wife. <laughs> he already had a Swedish wife. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned before that there was some critique against Sweden, uh, especially during the campaign mm. against Sweden taking place in the Security Council about the resources spent and so on. Um, did you also get those questions when you came on as, as uh, head of press? And um, how did you reply to it? What did you think about it? You were in the middle. Mm. Yes, a few. I mean, only from, from Swedish uh, media. Um, I thought maybe, uh, I mean, my own opinion that it, the the reporting on the campaign was a little bit uh, one-sided, and there was a lot of critique of of the money spent on this campaign, uh, and not so much talking about what a seat on the council would mean and what we could actually do uh, if we were uh, a member of the Security Council. Um, I mean, the Security Council is far from perfect. We all know that, and it fails sometimes, but uh, it succeeds sometimes. And, I mean, isn't that worth sort of every every attempt? Because, uh, I mean, it's what we have, really. And I think it's worth 
uh, it's worth fighting for. Now, you also mentioned that you were brought on board to do things a little different. Um, what did you actually do? What did you bring in that was different? Um, I guess I, I had some creative ideas. I mean, I I looked at our uh, Security Council term and how we were going to communicate this to, to our followers and how do you communicate uh, a sort of a complicated political process in a way that's engaging and, and interesting and how do I get people as excited about this as you know as we were um, and I um, I started this uh, this video blog um, which was just uh, sort of one minute uh, videos of um, I mean it could be anything surrounding the council it was uh, the environment, so I took our followers into the president's office that no one has ever seen that you know wasn't there before, and um, and interviewing not only our ambassador, I think he was on it a few times, of course, but like the experts that was actually working around the clock to get these resolutions through, and to journalists and to civil society organizations and to the people that was actually affected. And uh, and also interns, and we had like a sniffer dog on the blog <laughs> as well, <laughs> and um, just to trying to sort of create this story uh, around Security Council and our time there, and what we were trying to do, and what it entailed, and and what it meant. Um, and I mean, it's not you know revolutionary, but at that time, no one had really communicated about Security Council. Uh, that way and and it had a big impact and I, I just did it on my phone I had it you know in my bag it's and always I had the a, best right isn't it and it's okay just, <laughs> just the microphone uh, attached to it and and sometimes it was planned sometimes it's spontaneous um, but it, it turned out to be a really um, effective way to to communicate about our time our time there and you also told me that you did some really practical things. You started sending out like a daily email with hours and things, which a lot of journalists appreciated. Apparently, that hadn't happened before. <laughs> uh, yes. So I guess that's that is the the good thing about being completely new to something and not knowing how things you know used to be done, because you create your own your own ways of um, of being effective. And um, so every night, I mean. I got I get so many calls and emails, you know, what's happening tomorrow and what do you think is this resolution going to be passed and who's going to brief the council and uh, will your ambassador speak to, to us in the morning? So I just send out an email every evening to, I don't know how many, like 300 journalists on our list uh, for the day after, you know, this is going to happen and just giving them all the details. And for some reason, no one had ever thought of doing that before um, <laughs> sounds pretty basic mm. right but yeah. it's just you know I guess yeah no one no one really thought about it and um, it's a small thing but it made a big difference uh, for them to have that kind of information so um, being in the Bridge Builders Society pod uh, I also have to ask you the BBS question uh, <laughs> so you built bridges um, so in your opinion um, how did your work uh, change the global image of Sweden uh, during the time in the council and also do you think that the image of of the UN was affected in Sweden since the bridge goes both ways hmm um, I'm not sure uh, if the image changed or if it was uh, reinforced but but I think through through our efforts and of course communications and press is a part of that, um, we strengthen the image of Sweden as an engaged and responsible and results driven actor. And and I think that we uh, we may have surprised uh, many with our level of ambition and and creativity uh, and being persistent and standing up for for what for what is right. Um, and we were the driving force in in many initiatives, and and the press also found us interesting because we were engaged and active and involved in everything and stubborn uh, and also accessible. What response do you get back home when you're in Sweden? What do people say to you about what they've heard about the UN and the Security Council? 
Um, I mean, that's difficult to, to sort of measure, um, but I, I've got some really good responses and, and reaching out to schools and, and organizations to, to get some feedback. And, and you know, what, what I tried and what we tried to do was, was to engage and to tell the story uh, that even a small, smallish country, uh, you can make a difference uh, in security council. Like, you, can't, you really can't make a difference uh, in the council and, and on the ground. And I, I wanted everyone in Sweden to, to, understand, to understand the process and the value of this and to be proud of what, what we were trying to do there and what, what we achieved. Um, and also, of course, the story of the UN. Um, like I said before, I mean, it's, it's not perfect, but it's, it's what we have. And, and it's not an external actor. We, you know, we are a part of the UN. We, we are the UN. It's 193 countries in it together. Uh, and I think it's worth believing in because of what it achieves and because of the potential it has. And, and like I said, uh, because it's what we have. And that's what I was trying to, to communicate um, as well, because it does so many uh, amazing things, you know, for so many people. So I hope um, I hope that that I and we brought UN a bit closer to to Sweden and people a bit closer to the UN. That was that was the purpose. That's very nice and also very idealistic in I a know. way. <laughs> um, some people might call it uh, naive if they are um, if they don't have their their nice spectacles on but it's also uh, I can see in you that this is really what you believe yes yes it is yes so looking back uh, what are you most proud of um, I am proud of uh, I want to say a few things uh, you know we had um, we had such uh, such a committed and and passionate and brilliant team working straight for two years to you know always delivering and always walking that extra mile to make our term count uh, and I'm very proud to to have been a part uh, of that team um, and I'm proud of Sweden for uh, for making a difference and not least for you know strengthening the women's voice and influence in the council uh, and on the ground which I think we really made uh, a mark there um, we, you know, we raised uh, women, peace, security in all, in every every meeting and all discussions and in every statement. And in the beginning, we were quite alone in doing this. Um, I felt, but after a few, I mean, after a while, in, you know, other countries starting to to take notice and to also include women, peace, security um, in their communication and their statements and and. Um, in resolutions and and so on, um, and making gender equality uh, a part of the discussion, and that's something, and also inviting female briefers to. The, I mean, it was just uh, you know, feminist foreign policy and gender equality was part of everything uh, that we did, and, and that's quite an uphill road, also in the world of, of I don't know, tensions tensions between. Between uh, East and West, and and uh, some very populist leaders right now. So that's that's really not an easy road to walk. No, I mean it was yeah, it was definitely a struggle uh, a lot of the time. But we were persistent. This is we really stood by our cause there, and um, and I really think that it paid it paid off, and it had. Uh, positive consequences um and i also want to say you know i got to be a part of of uh shaping the narrative and and shaping our voice from the security council to to the world and um and i'm very proud of that what an amazing work you've done actually it's i'm just stunned i'm actually sitting here <laughs> just being <laughs> so you. silent so i'm gonna ask you did you have any free time during these two years or did you work just 24 hours um, well, I, um, I work, <laughs> I'm not going to lie, uh, I did not have a lot of free time when I was working. Uh, none I of us, saw you working. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> none of us, uh, did have much free time. I mean, and 
I don't think, I mean, we were all aware that if we only had two years to, to really make our mark and to do the, the most we could out of this time, uh, and we knew that, I think everyone that was there knew that we had to give a lot of ourselves uh, and everything you had, otherwise, otherwise you wouldn't be there. Um, and we all share that same commitment and, you know, we came, became a bit of a family uh, like that. Um, and sometimes, I mean, I don't think I very, very rarely works less than 11, 12 hours a day. And, and during the presidencies, it was like 14, you know, 16 hours. Um, but, but I loved it. So I, I'm definitely not going to complain. I felt like it was a privilege to be, to be a part of it. And, and of course we had, uh, we had time off. I mean, the management was really, they were really good like that, making sure that we took our vacation days because you need to recharge, uh, exactly. eventually. Um, and you know, often I, I, I travel home to see my family. I can't be away from them for too long. And, and I travel whenever I get the opportunity. And um, after the first uh, presidency, I traveled to the Masai Mara, uh, which was, I mean, unbelievable. And I just spending time out there with the animals and there was no, you know, nothing disturbing you in any way. My phone didn't work. Oh, you know, I, I was like, I have to go somewhere where there's no reception. Um, and I got back and I felt like a new person. Um, but then, of course, also found out that I had, I got dengue fever when I was there. And really? then <laughs> and then my, my body felt like it was made out of concrete for about a year. Um, and it was a bit heavy. It was, it was a bit of a challenge, but oh, yeah. I would still say the trip was worth it. It was, it was um, incredible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, life. What can you say? Um, thinking of the future. Yes. What goals do you have now? Uh, the future. So I, you know, I am super happy to say that I'm about to sign uh, a contract with the UN. Uh, I can't really talk about it just yet, but it's a contract and it's with the UN. And you, I mean, I worked so hard for this and I'm so, so very happy. Um, and uh, I do really want to do some field work as well for, for the UN. Uh, and it would be very interesting to do it in one of the countries that we've been working so much uh, with, maybe Syria or Yemen. Uh, and, you know, to tell that story, uh, that's definitely something I want to do in the future. So say uh, 40 years from now then, sitting in front of the fireplace, what would you tell your, grand your, your friends or your grandchildren? <laughs> From this time. Yeah, from this time. From this time. Um, well, I, I, you know, I thought about this, of course, and I want to tell you my uh, my favorite story, and it's my favorite because it always uh, makes me laugh. It was uh, a couple of years back, and we had this. Uh, we were launching a global initiative at the UN, and we had eight global leaders participating on on the stage but there were only seven there one was missing and it was uh, pres the president of Brazil uh, President Rousseff uh, she was late and I just got word uh, that she was coming up in the elevator on the other side of the building and you know I ran over there to to get her because they were about to start um, and the room was full of people and so I just turn the corner and she just steps out with her four Secret Service uh, agents and, and, you know, we're late and we're sort of, she's very tall, she's walking fast and I'm trying to keep up. So I'm like running next to her and my pencil skirt is too tight and, you know, <laughs> high heels and trying to look very professional and and so I'm running there next to her and her guards are also running next you know because they're supposed to be as close to her as possible and I sort of trip on someone's foot I don't know who whose foot and and I fall and I stumble and I fall like flat on my face and oh, and no. <laughs> and I lie there on the ground and I notice that I have something in my hand and I am just like I can't believe this. I I don't dare to look up, but I look up at the president, and she is skirtless. Like I have grabbed her <laughs> skirt on the way, you know, as I fall down, and I'm lying there on the floor, and <laughs> I'm like, what am I supposed to do in this situation? So, 
I'm like, I president, you know, Rosef, I'm I'm so sorry. I'm like, here's your skirt. <laughs> and she looks at me, you know, she looks like the stone face and the guards was like, should we shoot her, you know? And <laughs> and then she starts laughing and everyone just just laugh and we just standing there for like a minute just laughing and she's putting her skirt back on and they're helping me up from the ground. And um and yeah, so that's that's my story. And uh, maybe that's something on her bucket list as well. Skirtless in the UN. Maybe. <laughs> Who doesn't have that? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. So what yeah, a she should think. Story. <laughs> that's an amazing story and a great way to end the podcast. Thank you so much, Lisa, for sharing all your stories. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, and thank you all for listening to the Bridge Builders Society Pod. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.